Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Is the reality we living in, is it actually real or is it just a perception of our consciousness? What really makes up the fundamental reality and really what is our place inside the universe? On this podcast today, I'm discussing with Donald Hoffman, and he received a PhD in computational psychology from MIT as one of the professors and is a professor of the emeritus of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. He is the author of over 100 scientific papers and three books, including A Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome Donald Hoffman. Thank you very much, Dylan. Thanks for hey, having me on. I am excited for you to be here. We had a little bit of a technical audio and since you know my reality is primed to uh, paying attention to those types of things, I want to take us over to a new medium. So thank you for being patient and adjusting with us on the fly as we do this. Uh, I do want to dive back into the first question that I asked you and really just the core excitement of having you on this podcast and talk with you about this is one of the things that broke my brain about reading your book was the concept and the case against reality that physical reality may not be real it may just be a perception of our our own perception with consciousness and and it's just a physical interface that we use to interact with this world uh to really win the game of fitness and so i want to dive into you if you could kind of break that down a little bit for me to kind of understand it and kind of lay the groundwork of the conversation that we're going to be going into that's right so most of us uh Think about reality as being what we see around us. There's, I see the sun and the moon. I see tables and chairs and people and trees and cars and 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 the space around it. So there's all this space between us and everything else. So there's space and time, and then there's objects inside space and time. And for most of us, that's what we take reality to be. And and we're just little bodies. You know, you're a little body, maybe 100 to 200 pounds, 300 pounds in space and time, and that's what you are, is a little body inside this big space and time. So, but it turns out that our best scientific theories, namely evolution by natural selection, and then in, in physics, quantum field theory with Einstein's gravity, these two major pillars of modern science, evolution and physics, both tell us that space and time, and therefore objects in space and time, are not fundamental. And it's quite a stunning result that, that both pillars or physics and evolution tell us that space and time cannot be fundamental or space time cannot be fundamental and so on the evolution side and, and i should actually distinguish two different notions of, of of real because people use the word real in two different ways and so i i should distinguish what i'm talking about here because people might not understand so we, we use the word real sometimes to mean something is real if it would exist, even if no one was looking, if no one was perceiving it. So we, you know, that's when we ask if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to look at it or perceive it, does it still make a noise? That's the question we're asking about reality there. Does, is the tree real in the sense that it would exist even if no one was there to perceive it? Okay, so that's one notion of reality. But there's another notion of, of real, and that is, um, Suppose I, I say I've got a headache. Well, 
my headache only exists if I perceive it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't exist if it's not perceived. But if you said, you know, but Don, your headache isn't real, I might be very cross with you because it, it feels very real to me. So there are real experiences, right? Having a headache, taste of chocolate, feeling love and so forth. These are real experiences, but they're not real in this other sense that I'm talking about. Real in the sense that something would exist even if nothing perceived it. So, mm -hmm. so that's the notion of reality I'm going after here. Real in the sense that it would still exist even if it was not perceived by anything. Okay, mm -hmm. and so, so what evolution by natural selection tells us is that space and time and physical objects are not real in this other sense of being there even if no one was there to perceive them. So they're not real in that sense. And whatever we're perceiving is, of course, real to us. So, so I am perceiving tables and chairs and the sun and the moon and, and other people. So it's real in the sense of my experience. I am, I am having a real experience. But evolution tells us that your experience is your experience. Um, that experience um, is not the same thing as whatever might exist when no one is perceiving. Mm. Whatever, that, whatever the reality might be beyond what your perceptions are, um, um, that is not what, at all resembling what you perceive. And the argument for it is, is um, sophisticated in one way. It uses mathematics and uses evolutionary game theory. So Darwin's theory, when he first put it out, of course, it was a biological theory without a lot of math. But we've had a lot of time since Darwin published The Origin of Species, and mathematicians have gotten into the game. And, and so now it's a mathematically precise theory. Um, John Maynard Smith in the 1970s used game theory and, and wedded it with some mathematics in evolution to come up with evolutionary game theory. And so my colleagues and I, like Chetan Prakash, Manish Singh, um, Justin Mark, Brian Merriman, and others, um, we collaborated together in various projects to study does evolution by natural selection shape sensory systems of vision, touch, and hearing? shape sensory systems of organisms to show true structures of reality, the structures of reality that, that would be there even if no one was looking. Mm -hmm. And we first did simulations and it looked like creatures that saw the truth were going extinct when they competed against uh, creatures that did not, that just were tuned to what's called fitness. And then we went and, and looked at the math and, and my, my colleague Chetan Prakash, a good friend, he actually proved some theorems that basically the probability is zero, that any sensory system, like vision, taste and touch, for example, any sensory system of any organism has ever been shaped by, object, by natural selection to see any structure of objective reality. So whatever objective reality is, and, and the nice thing is we don't have to know what objective reality is. We, we can basically prove that suppose it had this structure, you wouldn't see it. Suppose it had that structure. Basically, suppose you had almost any structure, we can prove that you wouldn't, the probability is zero that you would see it. Mm. So, so what's, what's going on is that might be surprising because after all, evolution is about fitness. It's about making, you know, the more fit you are, the more likely you are to survive long enough to reproduce. And, and so surely um, seeing reality as it is would make you more fit. So what, what's, what's going on here? Surely I should see the truth 
if I want to be fit and pass on my genes? And the answer is, it turns out that seeing the truth is too much information. You don't need that information. So think about a virtual reality game like Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. And you're, you're playing a game of Grand Theft Auto and you're, you see your, your steering wheel and your dashboard and you see a, you know, a, a red Camaro on your right, for example, and you're, you're racing. Well, so you turn the steering wheel, you hit the gas and so forth to, to play the game. But what are you really doing? Well, you can't see it, but there's a supercomputer somewhere with millions of voltages that you're toggling in a precise sequence. I mean, that, it has to be exactly right for you to, to play the game. But if you had to actually go in there and toggle those millions of voltages per second in just the right sequence, good luck. You would, you would lose to someone who could just turn a steering wheel or, or hit the gas. And so mm -hmm. that's what evolution did for us. It gave us sensory systems that let us play the game of life. But you don't have to know how you're toggling reality to play the game of life. So evolution hides all that. It gives you this wonderful user interface that takes care of toggling reality. You don't need to know what exactly you are doing in objective reality. You just get to play with this virtual reality simplified user interface. Yeah. And we can go into it. Physics basically agrees that space and time are not fundamental. Yeah. And, and physicists are finding structures beyond space time. So, so what's amazing right. about this from, from just from my perspective, so on, on my side of things is I also I build multi-user virtual reality applications, a lot of them for behavioral change. Right. And so what is fascinating to me about what you're talking about here is this this simplification of life is that that more or less that reality was created for us to be able to play the game of life in a sense of our ability to perceive it and be able to perceive it, not only the ourselves in this, but being witnessed by others to play the same game as well. And basically all of consciousness, all of this is we have this unified consciousness of of. Uh, hierarchy, uh, orders of hierarchy of consciousness that actually come together that are able to witness and interact with each other and perceive their own reality. And even though that we may be playing the game of life, our conscious subsystems down below, we not, may not be aware of them, but they might be playing their own game with their own ecosystems that we're unaware of that we're still playing. The same way that if I, and, and sometimes there ha, there's an internal war. So, and we're all connect, I'm trying to put this together in one cohesive sentence here. But for example, like if me and you are having this conversation, we are creating a social reality together. But at the same time, there is my own internal split consciousness where I'm having, if I look at a cheeseburger, one half thinks it's delicious, the other things it's going to kill me, right? There's the two split conscious, but then you can go down the suborders and you were able to basically magnify that all the way down to the, this unified consciousness theory. I think it was consciousness theory, uh, all the way down to the bottom of, to the sub sub levels and then all the way to the very top. And so it's, it's a, it's a mind bender to wrap my brain around how that actually works and how you're actually able to take that and, and and say that almost everything is a social conscious perceived shared reality that we're experiencing together. Right. So so evolution tells us that space and time and physical objects are not the fundamental reality, but it yeah. doesn't tell us what is the fundamental reality. Right. And mm -hmm. the same thing with physics, right? Physics tells us that space and time and objects are not the fundamental reality, but it doesn't tell us what's beyond space and time. Yeah. And, and so we have to go out and, and, and as, as scientists, for example, go out there and, and make hypotheses and, and make guesses and, and, of course, be wrong and, and but test them and, and, and eventually try to figure out, okay, space and time and physical objects aren't, aren't it. What, what is the deeper reality? And so 
as you were saying, I, I do have a theory in which consciousness is fundamental and we have a mathematical model of consciousness and how dynamics of consciousness can actually be, lead to user interfaces. So conscious agents could be interacting with each other, but there could be so many conscious agents in such complexity that you couldn't really rock it all. It's like the Twitterverse, right? There's millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets. There's no way that you could read all the tweets or meet all the users. So you look at things like trends and so forth to, to get a, you know, a, a, a dumbed down picture of what's going on in the Twitterverse. And, and that's what space and time and physical objects are. We're interacting with a bunch of conscious entities. Like right now I'm interacting with you. I, I, I have some insight into your consciousness and you have some insight into my consciousness. And, you know, your, your cats and your dog and so forth, you can do the same thing. Um, mm. With the tree, you're getting a little less information and so forth. But so, so we have this a virtual reality headset yeah. that allows us to interact with, with this whole social world without getting overwhelmed, right? You, you, so that's what we have these user interfaces for, so we don't get overwhelmed. So that seems to be what evolution gave us, and physics seems to agree. What's amazing about that when you're talking about, like, part of things that make uh, there's magic inside virtual reality. And I'm going to speak from this. And one of the things that kind of dawned on me is talking about two pieces is that natural selection gave us the ability to, to take reality or whatever you want to call it and render it down to simple icons that give us an interpretation, a narrative level, a meaning level. And the humans are constant prediction machines. We're constantly predicting what something means and what does it do. And so in virtual reality, you don't necessarily need to have hyper-realistic things that look like a real avatar. I just need to understand what's going on in the situation, social cues. So like in VR, if I look at you sideways and I wink, Right. It doesn't matter how realistic those characters are. You get that social gesture and and the ability to save on the amount of data being processed and understand the subtext in that is my ability to share information from me to you uh, easily and frictionless. And that's one of the number one ways that we've been able to transfer intent and meaning and icons. That's why emojis are a, a number of icons. And there are different symbols of patterns of communication, human communication, one from one person to another and so i think a lot of people that maybe haven't experienced or uh, some of the people that say vr needs to be hyper realistic it more so needs to just be able to communicate the intention and the idea because one of the things that you said that struck me really hard was the fact that the goal of consciousness and shared realities is to understand and perceive the other as much as possible mm -hmm. that's right and so to understand the conscious intent of others, um, we need a, a user interface that will allow me to have some um, reliable, uh, but not you know total. I mean, for example, I, I for all I know that you, 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 there are all sorts of emotions you're having that, I, that I'm not aware of, but, but I'm aware of a lot. And when I'm interacting with my cat, uh, there's a lot that I can guess. I can guess what it likes in terms of food and so forth. But I'm sure there's a lot of it, cat social world that's completely beyond me. Mm. Uh, um, and so, so my interface would give me important information, um, but but not complete information, and, and and that's what user interfaces do. But most of us have the intuition that um, the moon is there and really exists, even if no one looks. And what I'm saying is that evolution disagrees. It, it, it says that the moon is a useful symbol in a user interface. Yeah. that in no way resembles the truth. And when you look, like in virtual reality, when I look over and I see the red Camaro in Grand Theft Auto, well, there is no red Camaro in the supercomputer, right? 
That red yeah. Camaro exists only in my conscious experience when I look. And then when I look away, that's gone. There, there is no red Camaro anywhere. But that, that one, that, that Camaro was gone. And, and there is, so now I look over to the left, I see a green Porsche. Well, that green Porsche only came into existence when I looked, and there's no green Porsche in the supercomputer. So I'm saying the same thing is true of the moon and the sun, that um, I look up there and I say, look at the moon. And you say, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful full moon tonight. Just like in VR, I might say, well, that's a spectacular green Camaro. And you could, you could be you know, in China playing the VR game with me. You'd say, oh, yeah, that, you, yeah, that's a wonderful green Camaro. And he's passing you right up, Don, so you better step on the gas. So you, we can all have the social shared green Camaro in virtual reality. And even though there's no real green Camaro, we can have the virtual reality make it so that there's a socially shared green Camaro that we all create in coordination. The same thing is true of space and time and the sun and the moon. Those are also shared, communally created um, objects that only exist. My moon exists when I look, and it doesn't doesn't exist when I don't look. And what's interesting about that is you're talking about there's a social reality that we have shared and you give an example of say a spoon a spoon to me has one kind of icon i look at it and we both agree that's a spoon because we have a shared social level we have english as language we have the icon as the spoon and when i say you know, silver spoon or whatever it might be in your mind you're like oh silver spoon that means i can eat out of it i go no silver spoon that means that you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and we now have slightly different, we both understood, but from a different perspective based upon our, our reality. So we have an, an overlap of perspectives that are not 100% congruent, but are but are close enough for us to get the gist. Again, not one-to-one -one data transfers, but just enough to be able to operate together cohesively. But that's yeah. exactly right. And, and we see that in our close relationships that you, you find as you live with somebody or spend a lot of time with somebody, that mm -hmm. you thought you knew, and then you learn new stuff all the time, and you realize that there were, and, and part of relationships is, is working through these misunderstandings and, and, and so forth. And people have different ways of seeing the world. And so we often presume that other people see things much like we do or feel much like we do. And you find to your surprise um, that sometimes they don't. So, so it's, it's, it's not um, an infallible, I mean, our, our interface is not infallible, but it's a useful guide to, to other people's experiences. And, so, so it is a bit stunning, though. It's a bit shocking to a lot of people to think that uh, everything that I thought was there, I mean, the table, my table, my coffee table exists, even if I don't perceive it. Um, the, the sun exists and it's been there for, you know, how many billions of years. Um, the, these are all just user interface stories that we create on the fly. And, and for many of my colleagues, the, one of the most difficult ones is neurons. What yeah. this entails is that right now I have no brain and I have no neurons. Now, if you looked, if you opened up my skull, you would see neurons in a brain, hopefully. Um, but but that's just like looking at the the green Camaro in Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, the green Camaro exists when you look, but when you don't look, it's not there. You create it on the fly. And so what that means is that neural activity, Although it's very useful, I'm, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, so I think, you know, I love to study neuroscience and I think we need lots of money for neuroscience. But neuroscience is a lot more complicated than we thought because neurons are just user interface symbols. They're not the deep reality. They're, they're a, a very simple gloss on a much more complicated reality. So neuroscience already is very, very complicated. 
But that complexity of 100 billion neurons and all these trillions of synapses, that is trivial compared to the deeper reality that it's just a gloss for. So we're going to need a lot more um, funds for neuroscience because we have to reverse engineer neurons and, and neural systems to whatever is behind them. And that's the big scientific question is what is beyond space time? And that was one of the things I thought, you posed a very interesting question around the experience. Is the experience real or is the tactical, practical, physical reality real? And and one of the difficult things, like if you have an, I think one of the gaps we have is this communication without experience. You get this, what we call experiential blindness. Someone doesn't know what it is unless they've actually had some sort of taste or some sort of reference, like referencing a color they haven't seen before or an experience or something they haven't tasted before. Unless you could say it, it's like this or it looks like that or the opposite of this, there's no reference point. There's no way to actually have that experience. And it's, it's easy with objects because I can draw you an object and show you like this. But that where where it gets really weird is taste, right? Because it's very difficult for me to to draw you a taste, or it sounds like a it sounds like vanilla. It doesn't really make sense in the way, and it's a very difficult. It's a very personal experience. It's very much inside the internal landscape of the mind, and so the, what you're talking about, and, and a lot of people have this around areas of like psychedelic experiences where they go and meet God or unity or whatever the thing might be. They go, well, that's just in your brain. They go, well, but I experienced it and I experienced it. And so I have an effect which then shapes my behavior. And I think more than anything, it's, it, it seems to come down to the, uh, the effect of it's real if it has an impact on you to some degree and shapes your behavior in some sort of way, shape or form. That's right. So this is really important to distinguish these two senses of real. So yeah. my experiences are real as experiences. My headache is a real headache, even though that headache only exists when I experience it. And there is a sense of which the green Camaro and the virtual reality is a real green Camaro experience. Mm -hmm. But the most of us want to go further. We're not just happy saying that these are real experiences. We want to say, but that green Camaro would be there even if no one looked. I mean, that's what we really want to say. It, it's, 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 it's real in that deeper sense. And that's what both physics and evolution deny, that anything in space and time it does not exist except when it's perceived. Space and time themselves are merely a data structure. They're, they are our user interface data structure. So space and time themselves don't exist independent of us. And, and therefore all the objects in there are in, in time, inside space and time, including galaxies and stars and so forth. All of these, these objects in space and time are objects that we render when we look and then we garbage collect them, we delete them when we look away. And by mm -hmm. the way, this is what um, the Nobel Prize in Physics was just given for this year. It, 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 really? The three physicists that won the Nobel Prize are, are won it because um, they did experiments which confirm um, this weird prediction of, of, of physics that what's called local realism, realism of this other, the, the realism that we just been talking about, that like a, an electron really does have a definite value of position or momentum or spin when it's not observed. It turns out that it's just false that it has that. <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's that, how do you prove something that, how do you prove something if you can't perceive it? If you are unable to prove it, if you cannot, if you cannot prove it when no one perceives it, then there's no way to prove that it's real when no one's looking. It's a very twist your mind kind of concept 
and and you 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 gave a top yeah uh, uh, another example I think made me think twice about this on the same topic is you can change the history of a photon traveling through space and time depending on how you perceive it, which was a really both those topics. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's right. So very, very good questions because someone might say, well, how in the world can you prove that something doesn't exist when you, you're not perceiving it? What, what could you possibly do to, to test that? Because you only see it when you perceive it. So how do you know what's going on when you don't perceive it? Mm. And so it's, and, and also people will ask, how in the world could you use evolution to show that we don't see physical objects as they are when evolution assumes that there are physical objects like organisms and DNA and, and, and resources and, and so forth. So if you know, Darwin started off talking about physical objects in space and time like organisms, plants and animals, and, and, and now we have DNA to talk about. So, how, so aren't you just refuting yourself by, by using evolution, which assumes space and time and assumes organisms in space and time, and, and then come back and prove that space and time and physical objects are, are, are just um, user interface symbols. So how can you do that without, without um, sort of refuting yourself or getting into logical contradiction? Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, this is you know, not, not just uh, people who are not you know, experts Many experts have this very same kind of question. Even philosophers ask this very same kind of question. And, and the answer is this is a generic and important feature of good scientific theories. Every good scientific theory will use a set of um, basic concepts that, that it starts with. And like Einstein used space and time for his theory of special and general relativity. And quantum field theory uses space and time because the quantum fields are defined over space and time. So they start with space and time as, as the foundational concepts. And yet, those Einstein's gravity with quantum field theory tells us precisely where the concept of space and time or space time ceases to have any meaning. At 10 to the minus 33 centimeters or 10 to the minus roughly 43 seconds, um, the whole thing falls apart. Space time has no operational meaning. So here you have a scientific theory in physics that starts, the foundational concepts are space-time, or space and time. But that theory then tells you, here are the limits of those concepts at precisely roughly 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. The whole thing is over and you need to have a new set of concepts. And evolution does the same thing for us. Again, without self-refutation, it says, so you start off with concepts like organisms in space and time, but, but it turns out that those concepts are useful symbols to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. But the theory tells you, but those symbols, the probability that, that the symbols you see are in fact an objective reality is zero. So, so, and this is not a bug, this is a feature. In fact, for me, I take this as a feature of a scientific theory that's worth taking seriously. If a scientific theory cannot tell you within the theory, the limits of its own basic concepts, then the theory is not as good as you would like. And if it can't do that at all, then I'm probably not gonna be interested in the theory at all. It needs a lot more work before it's really a really world-class scientific theory. So good scientific theory is one that, tell, that starts with a set of concepts that tells you the limits of those concepts. And, and so, so that's, that's something that people really misunderstand, even professionals. 
Yeah. And so you're talking about unless unless you can really distinguish what the upper and lower bounds are, you don't know what to test against. And since there is no edges, then it becomes kind of murky, which then it makes it not as solid, which you can't poke holes in it and you can't make it as clear as possible. You can't have other smart people come in and, and you know, start to, you know, hit the targets and, and move the mark. When one of the things I'm looking at this, what I think is the things that I say around these concepts, right, it, it's interesting because your neuroscientist approach, it goes in the area, a bit of mindfulness. They talk about what, you know, what you focus on shapes your reality, right? And that sounds woo woo and mindset culture kind of stuff, but it, but, but you're taught your neuroscientist approach. There's a lot to it. I always say it's, it's very difficult to be both the dungeon master and the player in the game of life. It's a, because you have to switch between those two perspectives and those two different realities. And when you're, and when you're doing that, you gotta, you gotta be aware, you gotta, it seems like with a lot of, you know, when in terms of mindset, depending on what you focus on shapes your reality and every, every quest you put out, every question, every quest starts with a question and that shapes and primes your focus on what you look at. And when you do that, it literally, you start to see the world completely differently. And you had some amazing examples that as, as I was going through the book, you're showing, okay, look at this circle and look at these objects that are in front of the circle and you see these glowing lines across them and tell yourself the story, tell myself the story, the narrative story uh, that those dots aren't, aren't just being connected. And then I'd see these lines glowing. And this says, okay, now imagine that same ball is behind those, that Swiss cheese looking object. And then all of a sudden my mind would perceive that the ball is not actually not being connected. It's just behind it. And then those, those lines would then go away. And then I, my mind would perceive it. So literally depending on what I focused on, it would change my visual perception. And even though I knew it was just my mind, it would actually fundamentally change what I was visualizing. And to me, I was trying to make that connection between that, that shifting of focus and mindset. So how have you seen in this areas of mindset and perceptions, you know, the fundamental reality being shifting, depending on the, the narrative story people are telling themselves? Well, yes, it's, it's, Quite striking, and this is now well established. For example, in, in visual perception research, that that you're not seeing just a snapshot of reality as it is. It's not mm -hmm. the, vision is not just like a camera that takes a picture and that's it. You, you see the truth. It's a very much a constructive process. You have um, roughly a third of your brain's cortex. Billions of neurons and trillions of synapses are engaged when you just open your eyes and look around. So. So the idea in, in our field is that you're constructing everything that you see. You're constructing um, the shapes and the colors and the objects and the three-dimensional motions and so forth in real time. And we actually can say which areas of the, of the brain are correlated. So for example, um, area MT seems to be involved uh, or correlated with high-level um, motion perception. Mm -hmm. And area V4 is correlated with the color perception and so forth. And, and so, so there's just all this tremendous hardware that seems to be in, involved in this whole process. Uh, and so, so it's, it's, it's construction. So we can give these visual illusion kinds of things that I, I do in my book, where you can see, oh, I'm not just seeing the truth. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of flexible, what, what I see. And uh, part of that is a survival mechanism, what you're talking about, what I need to focus on, it, it gets rise to the surface. I know, for example, like if I fast for a couple of days, my sleep's terrible because my body's like, it's time to get up and hunt. You need to get food. You need to you go out there and get focused. How have you seen or have you just in terms of a mindset, uh, 
personal improvement, uh, natural selection point of view. Have you seen anybody or any ways people have taken this and applied it to be able to change their their fundamental perception of reality to get them to change their actions or their habits or their behaviors at all? Well, one one thing that I think that this does is it it does give a little bit of a help for understanding sort of mindfulness kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So so a lot of us have the, the deeply held belief that I'm just this small object in space-time. I'm, you know, I weigh 100, 200 pounds, whatever it is. I was born so many years ago, and I'm just this little tiny object inside this big, big space-time, and I'm trying to make my way through and understand what it's all about. And our science is saying, no, no, um, space-time is not fundamental, and objects inside space and time are not fundamental. They are your construction. And that means my body. My body is not me. My body, the thing that I see in the mirror, the thing that step, steps on the scale and weighs whatever it weighs, that body is also just another symbol. It's another construction that I make on the fly. So who am I and what am I? I am not an object in space-time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that right there is a showstopper. I am not an object in space time. Mm-hmm. Whatever I am, I am that which is creating the experience of space and time, and I'm creating the experience of my body. I'm creating all, everything that I perceive, I'm creating that on the fly, and then apparently effortlessly, it's very, very quickly, and then I destroy it. I look over there, I see the sun, and then I look away, and the sun is gone. I'm, so I'm just creating, so I am not an object in space-time. So all of a sudden, the, the question of who I am comes to the fore, mm-hmm. and science very, very clearly tells me I am not an object in space-time. And so then, what am I? And that's where then science and spirituality have an, an interesting interaction, right? It's- Super fascinating because coming from like the uh, the, the uh, <laughs> conscious community versus conscious neuroscientist side of things is that there's this there's this there's this duality of thought. Am I an individual speck of nothingness or am I a part of the unified whole? And it seems to be both is true that we are both an individual and we are the whole and we are seem seemingly everything in between and. And I've noticed that just from the the realizations of terms of mindfulness and then the witnessing and and you know it always seems to go up to the very top of unity. Unity seems to be the highest thing at, at the end of everything else. You know, if you is is once you reach that unity state, then you have no quote unquote fear of death or whatever it might be because you we're all connected to the piece of the whole. And you brought that to a very interesting point, which I haven't really seen that in the neuroscientist areas of the the infinite consciousness agent of god about about all of it all of us all being unified under one um collective whole agent which is there's a bunch of subs sub uh conscious components all the way down can you explain that just a little bit right so there, there's you brought up two two very good points there one is well yeah we have this model of consciousness yeah beyond space time so you know what what if, if space and time aren't fundamental, what is? And the answer is, I don't know, but I've, as a scientist, I'm proposing a mathematical model in which consciousness is fundamental. 
and there are these mathematical entities we call conscious agents. And it turns out when we look at it, conscious agents, when you have them more than one conscious agent, the, the, the group of them, the combination of them, satisfies the definition of a conscious agent, so it's also a conscious agent. And so what we find is that you, know, you start off with a bunch of agents, they keep combining, combining, ultimately there's just one conscious agent. And so, so our, it's a theorem of our theory that there is one conscious agent, and in some sense, um, that we're, we're all projections in some sense of that one conscious agent, that one conscious agent looking through a, a different headset. And so, but the theory also tells us that our mathematics can never model that one conscious agent. We can, we can prove that it exists within our theory, but we can't actually describe it with, with mathematical rigor. So it's really, so we also have, we show the limits of our own theory. There are mathematical limits of, of our own theory. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll stop there. No, I just, I just uh, processing and all of what you're talking about. And I had a, the, you know, one of the things I've always thought was living in different realities. And this is, and and then, and now I'm trying to recognize that one of the the models that I've learned from doing all these podcasts, um, with your model, and I'm, and I, and I feel like your model has 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 knocked mine sideways. But one of the things that I've come across is. Is we live in three realities, right? Uh, possibly a fourth, but we'll uh, three realities. We live in our internal model reality, right? Which is our narrative mind, the stories we're telling ourselves, meaning-making machines, our interpretations, our our beliefs, you know, our sensations, our our emotions, all that stuff. Two, we live in a social reality, and that social reality is what me and you are currently co-creating together based upon our dialogues, our interactions, our gestures, our communications, our our you know our our shared narrative, our culture. You know, Joseph Campbell's the monomyth, all of this fun stuff, right? Is shared. And then we live in external reality. We live in a physical reality, the objects that we look around, the things that we perceive, the interactions that we have, and or I use it for virtual reality. And generally speaking, if you want to be able to change. You want to leverage one of the realities. You can you can change one reality by leveraging the other two realities. So if you're trying to change someone's internal reality, you can leverage social reality and external environments to be able to shift the narrative model internally. Vice versa, if you want to change someone else's social reality, you can change your internal and external environment. There's there's these different leverage mechanics that you can do to be able to affect and change these worlds. And I thought they kind of coexisted together in in this little uh, you know uh, triple Venn diagram. I don't know if it's a proper proper term of that, but that was that's what I was thinking. But it seemed to say that what you're saying though is it's not necessarily that, but it's almost like a duality between internal and social consciousness with everything, and just the sandbox we're playing in is this 3D interface. That's right. So the physical, we tend, tend to think of the physical reality as the big, the big fundamental reality. And, and we're just little social, um, recent evolutionary products in this, this, so the universe has been around for 13.8 billion years, space and time has been around. And, you know, living organisms came billions of years later or millions of years later, and then consciousness came after that. So the social world and, and you know, and my consciousness and my experiences are, are relative re newcomers in a universe that's fundamentally physical and unconscious. And so I'm, I'm a pretty insignificant thing and eventually all consciousness will be snuffed out when the universe goes extinct, right? In either the, a big collapse or a big crunch or, or you know, an entropic cold death. But, but you know, every, you know so, so that's the picture most of us have been raised on, which is that consciousness and, and you know, everything that's important to us, our conscious experiences and so forth is, Something that uh, is not fundamental, it, it, it 
luckily evolved, but it'll be snuffed out, uh, eventually be all snuffed out and everything we've ever done will be snuffed out. And uh, space time is the fundamental reality. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Our best science is telling us, no, that's completely wrong. So you're not a little latecomer in the big stage of space time that's always been there. Space time, it's the other way around. You're prior to space time, whatever you are, you are creating space time and space time is just a little data structure that you use to deal with the reality that's much more interesting and, and beyond it. So, yeah. so this really changes how we're going to be doing our self-talk to ourselves, the way we think it, how, who am I is the big question. And how do I think about myself? Most of us think of ourselves as little impotent creatures, 100 to 200 pounds, whatever we might be, that you know we have 70, 80 years if we're lucky, 90 if we're really lucky, and and um, the universe is ba basically going to extinguish us, and that's it. It's the yeah. other way around. Think about space and time as just your VR headset. Now you you can get yourself immersed in a VR game. If it's a really good game, you could lose yourself and actually you know for a while actually think of yourself as inside the game. And then you can actually think of yourself as I'm, I'm inside the Grand Theft Auto world and, and you're sort of immersed there. But, but eventually later you'll step back and go, wait, for a while I thought that was my world, but in fact, that was just a trivial little headset that I can just take off. And that's what this space time is, 13.8 billion years. It's a little headset that you can take off. And you're talking about this uh, from the perspective of, um, you give an example of, a group of people go to a VR arcade. And when they go to that VR arcade, you meet someone else there and they have the headset on. And I would love you to continue that that perspective. One thing to know about virtual reality, which is unique, and I'm gonna tee this off for you. And one thing that I realized is that your body cannot be present. You can't have presence in two locations at the same time. You may be able to switch perspectives, but you never dual split perspective. It's a very difficult place to be in. And so for when you put on the VR headset, one thing that's way different than any other technology is you have a sense of presence and that's like motion, the photon less than 10 milliseconds kind of stuff and all that jazz. So you put your head on, you feel like you're there, you get transported into that environment and then, you, and it, but it, but it feels real, even though logically you might feel that perceptually you have a sensation of actually being there. And so you give a great example where you kind of twist it a little bit and you talk about going in uh, to a, experience a VR arcade and you're with a group of friends. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that, and that referencing about consciousness? Right, so this, this has to do with, with death and so forth. So yeah. suppose you're in a, you go to a VR arcade with some friends to play like virtual volleyball or something and, and you put on, it's a fancy one, so you have not only a headset, but a bodysuit, so you actually have some tactile feedback and so forth. And, and so you find yourself immersed in a, um, say, a beach volleyball scene, and, you're, and you see the palm trees in the sand, and, the, and you see your avatar, avatars of your friends, and you take a virtual volleyball, and you hit it over to your friends, and you start hitting this virtual volleyball back and forth. And so and after a while, you feel immersed. You know, you're, you're there, you're enjoying the beach and the, and the sun and so forth. But then uh, one of your friends, Tom, says, excuse me, I'm thirsty, I need to get a drink. And so he takes off his headset and bodysuit to go get a drink. Well, what you see is that Tom's avatar all of a sudden becomes motionless. It just maybe collapses on the sand. It just lies there motionless. From the point of view of the VR game, Tom is dead. But, but that's 
just your headset. That's not the reality. Tom is perfectly fine. It's just in the headset that his avatar um, is not is not uh, moving. So, so apparently that's what death is going to be like. It's like you know, space and time is not the final reality. So, that, so you can see that these things really have deep significance. I mean, the, the claim that space and time is not fundamental, and and then the claim that consciousness is fundamental has profound meaning for all of our lives. It, it means that I'm not a little object in space-time, and it means that we have to rethink what, what is death. Um, yeah. Death could be nothing more than taking off the headset and maybe trying on a new headset. Um, Which is super interesting. And then it goes into this weird area of uh, psychedelics. I know with psychedelics, I mean, there's the John Hopkins study, and there's many other studies that that when people do a massive amounts of say psychedelics, they lose a fear of death because they realize that I am just this is not my body, is not my consciousness. I am one with the whole. And when I, it, when it, you, there's a there's a thing that happens that it seems to somehow slip us out of the matrix. It's almost like we're flipped that over for the volleyball arcade experience. If I go there and I put on the headset and I absolutely forgot I had a physical body and I had no memory of ever having that physical body. And then I take off and I don't have a memory that you have a physical body when you take it off and then you, you fall to the ground. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, you, you went down for the count, but, but it seems like there's a, there's a weird connection between doing psychedelics and the realization that we are consciousness and we aren't our bodies. And there's a more accepting, uh, 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 of, of terminal illnesses and anything else. There's um, studies that, that have that. Do you have any thoughts around what that's about or why that, why this types of psychedelics have that kind of effect on, on uh, changing our perspective in that way? Well, there are of course many different psychedelics and they, they act in different ways. Many of them work on a particular serotonin receptor, the ones that give you these, these metaphysical kinds of experiences of, serotonin 2a receptor or something like that mm -hmm. um, and right now our sci scientific theories of what's beyond space-time are not strong enough to actually give a, a concrete answer to your your question i would say this yeah. my guess is that in some cases the psych you, you could ask are the psychedelics just sort of screwing things up or are they giving you a new insight into a, a reality beyond and my, my guess is that there's probably some of both some of the some of them are just screwing things up but but a few of them yeah. may actually be giving us some insight into other possible headsets beyond space and time that we that we might use and and science can go there we can actually get models of of reality beyond space time i'm working on that with and so are the physicists by the way they, they it's not like we say space time is doomed um and we just throw up our hands the physicists have found something called the amplitudehedron and decorated permutations and cosmological poly. They're finding these things beyond space-time. So, so it's not like, oh, well, space-time's doomed. We can't make any progress. No, it's just like, oh, space-time is doomed. There's a brand new world for science to explore, and we're going into it. And I, mm -hmm. I'm doing the same thing with a theory of conscious agents. Um, this is beyond space-time, and we're, we're going after it. So, so, so we'll see. And the, the psychedelics may be giving us some insights into this realm beyond but we mm -hmm. need the, the science of what's behind space-time needs to mature before we can really give a, a good answer to your question but i should say what my many of my colleagues would, would say that most of my colleagues in cognitive neuroscience um still believe that space and time is fundamental mm -hmm. and that brains exist even if they're not perceived and that brain activity Neural activity is responsible for all of our conscious experiences. That that your experience 
is entirely caused by neural activity or embodied neural activity, your, your neurons in your brain, in your body, interacting with a, a, a real existing physical environment. That's, that's the view. I'd say 99% of my, my brilliant uh, friends and colleagues who, who are studying this, and, and they would say that um, we, we know that consciousness is a product of your brain activity or this embodied brain activity. And, and they have theories like the integrated information theory or the global workspace theory, or um, there's uh, Amroff and Penrose's um, theory of orchestrated collapse of neural states of, uh, I'm sorry, quantum states of neural and microtubules and so forth. But my answer, my thought on that is, is the following. These are, are, of course, brilliant researchers and many of them are friends of mine. But they have yet to have a single conscious experience that they can show that this is the pattern of integrated information or the orchestrated collapse or the global workspace structure that must be the Q shape in IIT that must be the taste of chocolate. It could not be the smell of garlic. There, there's not a single experience that they're able to, to, um, to prove must be connected with their particular physical or functional structure that they're so so they're batting zero and, and it's not because they're not they're dumb these are brilliant brilliant thinkers but when you start with space time as fundamental when our best physics is telling us that space time is not fundamental you can't get anywhere your fundamental hypothesis is false and so your whole theory of consciousness that comes from it will also be false mm. And, and you're saying because you can't repeat it and prove it and declare it as an actual, if, if you create this recipe, then you will absolutely produce this cake, for example, it's, 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 and it, you can't recreate it. And so until you, and the, and the only thing that we currently have is a shared understanding of what this looks like. The one thing, the one technology, and I'll get your, I'll get your take on this one. Have you ever heard of a, a woman named Mary Lou Jespin? Mary Lou Jespin, brilliant brilliant woman uh she was the head uh of the facebook research lab and she like helped invent the holograms back in the day and all this other crazy technology went to google you know killed it point being is that she realized with your camera phone if you if you take the camera and you put it on your finger you can see your you can see the blood flow right on your finger she she took an array of them put them inside a VR headset. And then she was basically a functional MRI machine at one 1,000th size, one 1,000th the cost. And then she said, oh my God, what's Facebook gonna do with this? And then she quit, started her own company called, I believe called Open Water. And, but if she said, okay, what happens to her thing? And I found this like four years ago. She's like, what happens when you have a VR headset on, you have a functional MRI on, and then as you're spending thousands of hours inside of this VR headset, it's looking at the brain flow. You're looking at what's going on, what's moving around, and you can start to map and model and see, oh, when Dylan uh, looks at that green Camaro inside of VR, this is what's going on in terms of the blood flow. And then I can interpret, they, that headset can interpret that and say, think green Camaro, and then send that AR VR telepathy to you and translate that and go, oh, Dylan's looking at a green Camaro. If Functionally, she is able to do that. Would that then achieve the ability to map it? Because we can say when Dylan has this type of MRI blood flow going on in his brain, therefore, that is the experience. I think that we can get very, very good um, technology there. I think that is, it is possible to read blood flow and EEG and, 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 and so forth and 
discover correlations between those patterns of activity of the brain yeah. and specific conscious experiences. So I, I, in fact, I think that there's uh, some people in my own department uh, who, who've been doing exactly that kind of, of research. I'd, I'd love to meet them. Essentially, can do a lot of mind reading from just the brain activity. It's so amazing. Now, one thing I want to tie into this one, and it's going to relate, but there's also a, it's also a sidestep in this space. Uh, virtual reality for behavioral change. So it's one of the things I'm fascinated. I do a lot of work in this space. I work with like USC and Harvard and other people in the area. But we talk about part of playing the game of life is having the ability to control your perceptions, what you focus on, what you look at, what behaviors, what actions you take, and that the best types of perceptions come to the fact where you have cross-referencing information. Uh, let's just say I'm looking at this camera and then I can reach out and touch it. And I have a tactile perception. I have a visual perception and I'm allowing, I'm able to kind of modify my I, my understanding of what this means to me based upon additional perceptions and feedbacks and using virtual reality for behavioral change, right? And the fact that you can modify the physical, the digital physical reality, and you can also use social reality to change the narrative and beliefs. And you can also feed in additional perceptive behaviors, i.e. if you're wearing an HRV or an EEG, you can take other perceptions that you wouldn't understand and you can put that down and say, oh, when you look at uh, the spider, your heart rate you know, goes up. And when you see that, you're able to modify it. What are your thoughts around leveraging? Because if the whole, if this whole world, universe, cosmos, more or less is created as a, is a game board for us to be able to have a conscious experience and play the fitness game of life. What are your thoughts around using virtual reality for behavioral change and to increase our fitness score? I think we've just scratched the surface of the potential that when we realize that um, this is far more flexible than we thought, that we, we thought space and time was this pre-existing sort of fixed external world that's sort of you know, not malleable to us. Now we realize it's just a, a data structure. We can start to play with it. We can start to play with that structure and we can use virtual reality in therapeutic situations. You know, for example, an obvious one is, for example, someone who's got a phobia for snakes or something like that. You can, you can introduce them to a virtual snake in, in gradual and in, in sort of without overwhelming them, get them used to playing with a virtual snake. And, and, and you can, by the way, you can start off with a snake that's not that realistic to begin with. So that mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not really bothering you that much, but, but you know, your, your amygdala is re reacting a little bit to it, but not too much. And then as the person gets used to it, you can make this snake a little bit. So that once you start playing with virtual reality, there's all sorts of things that you can do in all sorts of therapeutic realms. Um, but I think it also, there's this deeper thing about it, which is not just for, for people that are having difficulties, but, but, but just our everyday self-conception changes. When I, when I really recognize that I am not an object in space to me, when you really begin to reckon with the fact that our best science is telling, you, telling us that your body is just a symbol that you create. It's, it's one of your experiences. It's not who you are. It's a symbol that you create. It's like saying when you're in a virtual reality game and you're looking at your avatar. So, Don, that is not you. That is just your avatar in the game. Don't worry. If someone shoots a bullet at that avatar, 
you're, you, you'll be just, you'll just be fine. You can take your headset off or whatever. This physical body that weighs whatever it weighs, 160 pounds, and, and, and it has, you know, this kind of, you know, it has, you know, arthritis, whatever it might be. Um, that body is just a symbol that you create. You are not your body. You are not anything inside space and time. So a real psychological maturity is going to be coming to terms with what, who am I if I am not an object in space time? So that's, so, so you can use VR for, you know, for all sorts of psychopathological conditions, but, but beyond that, you know, even for people without psychopathology, the issue is really understanding who we are. We used to think the earth was flat. We used to think the earth is the center of the universe. Now we think that we're just little objects in space time. All of those are false. Mm. So, so, so who am I and, and how does that change my whole psychology of who I am and how I interact with other people? And it's very, it's unusual because there's a thought I had before. I used to think that we are, people think that we're thinking machines that feel, but my next thought was we're actually feeling machines that that think and we use our prefrontal cortex to make interpretations of the world to help us get this advantage to get what we want to get what we desire to get our goals at the same time though if you look at what you're talking about a bit of this buddhist philosophy of being the witness who is the witnesser right and so we are not thoughts but i guess we're not also our feelings okay if we're not our feelings okay then we are that person that we are that consciousness that is witnessing our thoughts and witness our feelings. And there's a certain level in the, that the Buddhist laws of being okay. And if you can step back and witness yourself observing the situation, whether it's your emotions or whether it's your stories or whether it's a physical interaction or whether it's whatever, you have a sense of being okay because you are, you are, you are separating yourself from the actual experience. And the question is, what is that observer? And this is kind of the fundamental thing of what is the thing, the consciousness that is witnessing the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors, the bodies, the avatar that makes us up in both virtual reality and in the physical reality. That, that, that's right. So this is, again, where science and spirituality can have some very interesting interaction. And, and one good metaphor here is, again, if you're if you're in a virtual reality game where um, you, you have an avatar and you're, you feel like you're embodied, if you lose yourself in the game, then you perceive yourself as this little tiny body, your mm -hmm. avatar, in this big virtual world. And as things come at you and, and so forth, you're going to be nervous if they're, you know, if they're attacking you and so forth. But if you have this different point of view, you realize, wait, 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 I am nothing inside this game. I am not inside this, this virtue. That's just my avatar. I'm sitting in an office somewhere else with a cup of coffee. I'm just perfectly fine over here. This whole game is just playing off in my head it's all it's it's all a head game yeah so if you have that attitude and you so you realize i am nothing in the game i am not an entity in the game i am the entity whatever that entity might be that has the capability of experiencing that whole game and then walking away from it so so that's sort of what i think many spiritual traditions are, are telling us including buddhism that that once you realize this body is not who I am, it's my avatar in the game. Mm -hmm. It's just an avatar. What am I? I'm I'm more like the the consciousness, the field of consciousness, 
that um, has decided to take on this avatar and play this game for a while. But if you think about it, you know, what, what have I really lost? Suppose I forget my story, where I was born, who my parents were, what my degrees were, what I've done in life. And so I'm just sitting here right now and I don't remember any of that story. My reality is still secure. I'm, this is, I'm, I'm conscious and that's, that's my essence. The story of me is just a story. It's just like, it's not, I mean, it's good for the game, but it's not really who I am. I, I would be fine, change my name. I'm no longer Don, now I'm Tom. Doesn't change who I am whatsoever. Change the story. Oh, he didn't get this degree, he got that degree. He didn't go to that school, he went to that school. He didn't, it, it doesn't really matter. My consciousness is my consciousness. And, and so, but we spend most of our lives identifying with the story and trying to polish our story and try to impress other people with our story. Look what I did. I started these companies or I, I got these degrees or I, you know, I published this many papers, whatever it might be, or I, I ran this fast on the track, whatever it might be. So we're, we're trying to impress with these stories, but these are, that's not really who I am. And these stories come and go and I don't. That, that, there is something deeper, as you said, that, that is the witnessing presence for all these stories and it can enjoy the stories, but then it can walk away from the stories and it's not diminished for walking away from walking away from the story. Yeah, it, the game that we're playing is the, the whole game of natural selection and evolution. All this stuff is just a game that we play that if, is a natural game of selection that we go on that progresses system. It doesn't mean the only meaning that happens is the meaning we give it. Right. We have to win to build this. I have to, you know, uh, make a ton of money. I've got to build a legacy. I've got to uh, achieve this award or whatever, whatever it might be. But all those are just games that we're playing. But we're just an observer, much like someone putting on the VR headset. They're not that avatar that's playing that virtual reality game. They're merely a consciousness that stepped into the experience that chose to play that certain game at that moment in time. And it doesn't necessarily define them on who they are on a certain level. The narrative story, we tell ourselves that if I don't win this game, I am not good enough. Or if I win this game, I am the best other. And that, that's that, that egoic mind, that narrative story that steps on top of it, which, which brings me to this weird other side of things where people get this non-duality state where they talk about people that get, you know, quote unquote enlightenment and they, their narrative mind shuts down, where they stop telling themselves stories and they start to get that really whether non-feeling or positive emotions, they become unattractive to environments. What are your what are your thoughts around the the playing this game, the egoic mind, and then also those enlightenment people that that lose the narrative storytelling, whether it's for a month or for the rest of their life, and and how does that affect their consciousness? Well, I think that they're onto something. So I think that when you realize that you're not anything inside space time, you're not your body. You're, you're the consciousness that is creating all this virtual reality on the fly. I create everything I see as I look and I delete it when I look away. That changes who you are. And, and when you realize that you're gonna walk away from all this, right? You, you get 70, 80 years in this headset and or 90 years and, and, and then you walk away. So it's, it's foolish to, to identify myself with anything that I am going to accomplish in, in, in this, because I'm going to walk away from it. 
and 300 years from now, no one will even remember any of it. Name, you know, name, name who was the, the most famous person in 1782. I don't know. Who cares? Who was the richest person in 1782? Who gives a rip? You know, who, who was, who are your, you have, who knows how many like great, great grandparents. Can you name any of them? No, I can't name any of my great, great, great grandparents. So, so that's not what it's about, right? You're not going to be remembered what you've done. But for a lot of us, that, that feels terrible. Oh, so my life is pointless. Nothing is going to be remembered. But it's not about this world. This is just a, a headset. We're, we're not here to make our stamp in this world. We're here to learn. Um, and we're here to learn even from all, all of our mistakes. And then we'll take this headset off and, and, and move on to some perhaps other, other headset. Um, we'll, we'll let go of this particular story, this, in my case, the story of Don Hoffman. I'll let go of that and, and move on to some other headset. So, so really, you're, you're right that there's the whole egoic thing that we find ourselves tied into. And it's the source of war. It's the source of social strife mm -hmm. so, uh, and personal dysfunction. It's this illusion that I am just a body competing with you and you are just a body. And so we're competing and, and we have to fight. And I need to show, because I feel so small and precarious, so I only get 70, 80 years, and then it's all over. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I've got this really fragile, on this rap, fragile thing, I need to do something to make myself feel better. I need to be better than you. I need to be more famous than you. I need to be smarter than you or faster than you or, or better singer than you or whatever it might. So we're always comparing each other. And that's the egoic mind. And the egoic mind is the natural result of an illusion. The illusion is, I'm a small object in space-time. I am just my body. That's an illusion. When you realize that, that all dimensions that you've ever seen, and all the gold that you've ever seen, is something that you create when you look, and you throw it away when you look away, and you realize that everything that we fight for are is just like trying to fight for virtual land in a in a virtual reality world. It's fine while you're in the game, but as soon as you take the headset off, that stuff's gone. It, it's it, it's no longer there. So I think real deep personal health comes from facing full on that I am not an object in space time. I am that which creates space-time and all the objects that are in space-time. So how do I learn to relive when I realize I'm not an object in space-time? Who am I? And, and then also, am I different from you? Am I, is there just really the one consciousness that has a, a Dylan avatar and a Don avatar, but it's really the one consciousness that's just talking to itself through different avatars? And if so, then then... Why in the world would I want to be fighting with my Dylan avatar? Why wouldn't I want to be um, loving my neighbor as myself, as certain religions will say? Mm. Because my neighbor is myself, just under a different avatar. Yeah, and that is one of those, those theories in the world, I think that gets blended together is the, it, are we just the universe, the sensory organs of the universe experience itself, right? Are we all these different moments in time of experiential consciousness all reflected back to each other? And the only way that we can really experience the universe is by witnessing each other or ourselves. And that's one of the things that people say is you don't really change or transform until you really get witnessed by yourself or the community or, or others to show that 
who you are and what you do. It's very hard to um, define yourself within a vacuum with nothing to compare or reflect. And what do we what do we want to make out of that? What is the story we choose to to, to become from that? Uh, super deep jumping sideways and we're going to come towards getting closer to the end of this podcast but one take a jump into a space is i want to talk to one area about this because um very relevant right now artificial intelligence and understanding our own consciousness you talk about artificial intelligence and and how that might help us to to witness our consciousness and what are your thoughts around that and what are your thoughts around if you could talk to artificial intelligence, what would you say to recognize if it is conscious or not? Right. So many of my colleagues are studying artificial intelligence. I was in the artificial intelligence lab myself at MIT when I was a grad student. I'm very interested in it. And the standard view is that if we can get the circuits and software inside of a physical um, artificial intelligence machine, with the right kind of complexity, the right kind of dynamics, then somehow from the unconscious physical system of the AI, we will somehow boot up consciousness. So consciousness somehow will emerge from the physical dynamics. And I, of course, I think that that's false. I think that um, the, the AI system exists when I perceive it and it doesn't exist when I don't. So it, 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 nothing inside space-time exists. Local real, put it this way, we now know that local realism is false. Mm -hmm. That means physical objects do not have real values of their position and so forth when they're not observed. And they're not there. So that's, local realism is just plain false. And that's true not just for microscopic um, electrons and quarks and so forth. It's also true for macroscopic objects. Local realism is false for the moon as well as it is for an electron. So, so I don't think that AIs can create consciousness in the standard physicalist notion of that, where there's a physical set of circuits and software that, that start off unconscious, but somehow generate consciousness when they get complicated enough. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think since I, I'm proposing that consciousness is fundamental and that there's going to be a model of consciousness outside of space-time, so I'm working on this conscious agent model of consciousness beyond space-time, and space-time is one VR headset that a few consciousnesses use, but there are countless other headsets beyond, besides space-time. So space-time is just one headset that consciousness can use to play around and, 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 and interact with itself, but, but space-time is just one. So once we understand our particular space-time headset mm -hmm. and how it gives us access to consciousness, like right now, I'm getting access to some of your conscious experiences, you know, fallibly, but, but reliably, through, uh, through our interface. It's, it's a second generation interface in the sense that I'm looking at pixels on my screen, we're on mm -hmm. the Zoom thing. So certain pixels are giving me insights into your consciousness. Now, it's not that the pixels are creating your consciousness, right? I, I, I don't want to say that the pixels on my screen are creating Dylan's consciousness. That's silly. And then there's other pixels that are, you know, just the window or something behind you or the, or the, the planet that I see behind you. No, it's, it's, it's and the same thing. Any, the physical objects that we see in space and time, like neurons and brains, they're not creating consciousness. They're, they're just, quote unquote, the pixels. They're just what I see within my VR headset. They're not creating anything. But if I can reverse engineer my headset 
if I can understand how my headset works, then I may be able to open up new portals into consciousness. Right now I have a portal into your consciousness through my headset. Mm-hmm. And we have one technology for opening up new portals right now into consciousness. And that's, that's um, having kids. Every time <laughs> you have a kid, it's very low tech, but it works. And, and by the time you, you have a kid that's a couple, three years old, you've got a new portal into consciousness where you can actually interact and you, you know, um, somehow you have an access to consciousness that you didn't have three years earlier. Mm. So we have this new quote unquote physical portal. So once we reverse engineer that technology and reverse engineer our headset, I think that we can then rejig our interface and open up new portals. And it may look like artificial intelligence within our headset. Maybe it might look like artificial intelligence technology, mm-hmm. but what will not be happening is that unconscious circuits and software are magically giving rise to consciousness. That's, that, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's going to be that there's this pre-existing consciousness that has this headset and it has figured out new ways to open up new portals into other consciousnesses through that headset. So, so what I'm getting is you're, you're for child labor. So... <laughs> <laughs> If, if every other um, person is just another avatar of me and it's really the one conscience, then, then there really is some good motivation to yeah. um, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, your as yourself. yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think love takes different forms and love isn't always just like overly toxic positivity, but it's seeing the best in the others and wanting to see them, you know, grow and develop. Because my one of my personal beliefs is human potential, right? And people, whatever that potential is for that person to grow and and speaking that truth and and seeing the best in them that they may not see in themselves to get them to take those brave steps forward that might be difficult for them to do on their own. And so I think part of that love is especially with a child, is potential. You see the potential of a child and where they go and you encourage them. You get to recreate your experiences that you have with that children as they grow. And you also see the potential of where they go. And that's part of the, the beauty of that of that journey. And so I, I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, uh, side question on, on, on the whole AI side of things. So AI is no way for actually to be conscious. It's just it's a very clever version of uh, manipulating our physical reality to help us give us more data, some more icons of an interface to be able to interact with. Um, is there any questions you would, this probably, is, I, I've, I'm going to ask it anyways, is, is there any questions that you would ask a super smart AI to try to see if it's conscious or try to understand or try to reflect with it to, to have a, have a, a meaningful, insightful communication with something that may not actually be conscious, but seems like it is. Well, so I think that there's an important point here about how we think about consciousness and even life. Okay. So right now, the way we think about things is that we divide the world, for example, into living and non-living things. Like, so a rock is not alive, a person is alive, a cat is, of course, alive, um, uh, so is an amoeba, it's alive. A virus, uh, maybe so, and, but beyond, below that, it's probably not alive. So we make the distinction between living and non-living, and we also make a distinction between conscious and unconscious, like a human mm-hmm. is conscious, my cat is conscious, but I have not as much insight into their consciousness. A rat, sure, an ant, uh, maybe. Uh, an amoeba, maybe not. And a virus, and, and just a piece of rock, no, is not conscious. 
So we divide the world that, and I'm saying that that distinction that we make between living and non-living, conscious and unconscious, is not a principled distinction. It's a mistake. It's an artifact. Our, we're only interacting ever with consciousness, other consciousnesses. But we have a user interface. What do user interfaces do? They dumb things down. They hide stuff. That's the whole point of a user interface. If you, if you wanted to see the whole mess, you wouldn't use the interface. You'd just see the whole mess. So you have the interface to simplify things. So, of course, when we simplify things, all of a sudden we'll get less and less information. As we simplify more, we get less and less information about consciousness and about life. And at some point, the thing is so simplified that it looks like it's, it's not conscious and it's not alive. But that's an artifact of the limitations of our interface. That is not an insight into reality. So the distinction that we make between living and non-living, between conscious and, not, and unconscious, is, I claim, an unprincipled, a non-principled distinction. We're always interacting with a live consciousness. But our interface gives us more or less insight. Most, much of the time, it gives us no insight. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying, so this is not panpsychism in, this, in the following sense. Some panpsychists will say that fundamental objects like electrons and quarks and so forth have also some consciousness. So there are these physical objects, but their true nature is consciousness, for example. So these are objects in space-time, and, and maybe also a rock you might have consciousness, some versions of panpsychism, some, some not. I'm not mm -hmm. a panpsychist in any form because I'm saying that space-time itself has no interest. It's not fundamental. It's, it's, so we're not going to try to stick consciousness inside space-time in the particles or in the rocks. So there's no consciousness. There's no consciousness in my body. My body is merely a data structure that you create when you see and I create when I perceive it. And there's nothing inside the body. It's, it's just a data structure. So my body is not conscious. It's just a data structure. So no object in space and time is itself conscious. All of them are user interface symbols pointing to consciousnesses. Mm. So you can see the whole framework in which I'm thinking about things is entirely different. Yeah, you're, you're saying no matter what physical elements you may be interacting with, that is just a simple, simple, overly complex user interface to allow us to interact with consciousness. And consciousness is, and, 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 and everything is consciousness. It, you are conscious, I am conscious. The, but the physical environment that we interact with is just an interface to be able to get data out of consciousness because we are... But the consciousness is not inside space and time. Mm -hmm. So there's no consciousness inside space and time. Space and time is inside consciousness. Mm -hmm. Space and time is just a data structure that my consciousness is using to interact with other consciousnesses. So there's no... So, there, so that's why I say that the rock is not conscious. There's no consciousness inside the rock. Yeah, the rock yeah. is inside we, my consciousness. We have to yeah. completely change things it's, around. It, it's as if there was a super conscious of you know a super conscious that hosted reality, and inside of that reality or that virtual reality or that super virtual reality, whatever you call it, lives the, the universe, lives us, lives all of consciousness experience itself, and we will only know because we're inside of that bubble of that consciousness and the only way we, there's no way to get outside of that because that consciousness is what makes up the reality which makes up us which makes and we make up our body and our being and our spirit and whatever else it might be is it 
Am I getting closer to the point on this? Yeah, I think so. And it's sort of what, what spiritual traditions are saying as well, that, that, that you're not the little thing inside the space and time. This is just a creation of your consciousness. And as you step back and be the witness, then you realize I'm not just this little object inside space and time. I'm something that transcends space and time. And in fact, space and time is just some little data structure that I'm using. And eventually I'll, I'm going to say, okay, I've had enough time with that data structure and I'm going to let it go. And now I should say um, that some of my colleagues would, would step back and, and say, well, wait, wait, now you're, you're walking away from science and um, the enlightenment and reason and all the things that we've gotten from, from the scientific re revolution and so forth. You're, you're going off into mysticism. And, and, and my attitude is, is very different. I, I love reason and I, I love enlightenment science. It, it's, it's fantastic. But reason itself tells us its own limits. That's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It tells us that there is no theory of everything, that, there, that it's not possible to have a theory of everything, and that if you have any really substantial scientific theory, there's always going to be a statement that you can state that's true with respect to the theory, but can't be proven within the theory. And if you add that true, new truth to your theory as, as a, an assumption of your theory, then Gödel says, I'll give you a new statement that's that, true, but can't be proven within your theory. So reason itself, one reason I really respect reason is that reason itself tells us its limits. Just like I was saying about scientific theories, I respect the scientific theory that clearly delineates the limits of its own powers. Where does this theory stop? Like space-time stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. That's where it stops. Fantastic. That is a serious scientific theory because it tells me its limits. Reason also tells me its limits. It, it tells me that no matter what finite set of axioms you have, there will be an infinite intelligence beyond that, that that's beyond what you can reason within that finite system. And all of our scientific theories are finite systems. No mm -hmm. one has a, an infinite set of distinct axioms that they're using to build up. So we have always these, these theories made up based on finite sets of assumptions and they may have an infinite number of consequences sure a finite set of axioms can have an infinite number of consequences with a certain kind of production rate but Gödel says even with all those infinite consequences of your theory that you can prove i'll show a, a bigger infinity that you can't prove that, that transcends <laughs> your theory and so so what i'm saying here is that our best science well physics and evolution is telling us space and time are not fundamental get mm -hmm. over it get used to it and that there is no scientific and girdles incompleteness is telling us there is no scientific theory of everything so the of course the, the smartest scientists when talk about a theory of everything it's with a wink and a nod they, they know that there is no such thing others may not understand they, they think that they're really after the ultimate theory of everything and and there is no such thing there is no theory of everything but Gödel is also pointing to this whole realm of unlimited truths. Mm -hmm. There is this realm of unlimited truths that transcends any theory. Mm. And that is what reason points to. So reason itself yeah. says that any reasoning system will leave out an unlimited range of truths. Yeah. always and necessarily and that is 
true flowering of enlightenment. It's enlightenment and the scientific revolution has led to that humbling conclusion yeah. that there is no theory of everything, that there's a, a realm of truths that transcends any theory, and that space and time themselves are not fundamental. And any good theory will tell you its own limits. And yeah. reason itself has its own limits. Yeah. So, so that's the true product of the enlightenment is that that under, and that's why I love reason is because it doesn't put on, it doesn't try to hide the fact that it has a limit. It yeah. does have a strong limit. What yeah. is that source of unlimited truth beyond reason? I think that's what we are. You can't know it by, by reason. You can know that it exists by reason, but you can't explore its depths with, with reason. Reason tells you it can't explore its depths. But you can, and that's where the spiritual traditions come along and say, but you can know it by being it. If you let go of your concepts, if you let go of your reason, not that reason is bad, reason is wonderful. It's a, it's a powerful tool, but, but you can choose to put the tool down. And when you put it down, then you are that unlimited intelligence, that unlimited truth. And then you can go back to reason and, and um, you know, figure out a little bit of what you learned about yourself. So, and that's how I think science will go in the future, that scientists will use their reason and, and mathematics and careful theories. But then you also step out into pure silence where there's even an unlimited truth that you are. You get a few truths, <laughs> come back into space and time or whatever, you know, whatever mathematics you're doing and get your the next step in your scientific theory. So you go back and forth between the, the realm of you know, concepts and reason, and then this other realm that, that reason entails exists of unlimited truth beyond the power of reason. So that's not schmisticism that's ignoring the enlightenment. That is a sober recognition of what the enlightenment is teaching us about reason and scientific theories. And, and, and by the way, I should also be very, very careful and say, look, I, I of course am not endorsing blank slate, blank slate taking of all things that any spiritual tradition says. Just in the same way that I'm not saying I'm going to accept anything that scientific theories said, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. We have to put, you know, be critical and, and about everything. So be very, it's easy to delude ourselves. So I listen with an open mind to um, mystical spiritual ideas, just like I listen with an open mind to scientific theories, and then I try to disprove them. Mm -hmm. That's sort of that, and that's sort of the thing that you have to do. be open-minded, listen, and then test. And certain things will pass the test for a while, and other things will not both spiritually and in science. I love that. And what you're looking at with that is you talked about the truest honor that you could pay to any subject matter, any topic is the willingness to put it through a rigorous scientific method. But the only thing about the scientific method and or reason is that it is a perspective system where you put it under the constraints of a perspective, which means if you're putting it inside the constraints of a perspective, you can only focus on things within that perspective, which then automatically excludes everything on the outside. It is, it is nearly impossible to include everything in the universe inside a scientific method, but you can take any 
topic, whether mysticism or enlightenment or science or neuroscience or any of that stuff, and you say, I'm going to take this seriously. And the way I'm going to do it is I am going to, I am going to formally address this through the perspective of the scientific method to understand, qualify, test, prove or disprove different pieces of it so that I can get a closer understanding and a reflection that will allow me to more accurately understand what is happening in that situation, which is the point, the goal of consciousness is to understand itself and the other. I, 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 we're on the same page on that, absolutely. And I, maybe another way to say what, what you said is that, you know, in the spiritual traditions will, will often say that, that the words that they use are just the pointers. Like the Buddhists will say the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. It's just a finger pointing to the moon. And so anything <laughs> that we write about it, right, yeah. anything that we write, is not the thing itself. You know, it's just a pointer to it. Like you were saying before, if if you haven't tasted chocolate, I can talk about chocolate all I want to. But if you've never tasted, the, the, even the pointer is not going to do anything for you because you've never tasted it. So, yeah. so, so and I dare so, say you haven't lived if you tasted chocolate. So exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly right. So, so with all of this, with everything you do, with the time, the energy that I, I, you know, was going through the book, I was like, I was like, how much time do you take to put this together? There's a lot of effort and energy in this, in this concept, in this direction. Do you have a holy grail or a flag in the sand? Is there something you hope to achieve by putting this effort and energy and this, this concepts out there in the universe and into consciousness? Well, I have um, sort of my little local goals and then there's the you know the sort of the bigger picture my, my next local goal is i'm working on this mathematical model of consciousness and i'm i my next goal is to show how this model projects into space time and predicts for example scattering amplitudes at the large hadron collider so I'm, I'm very interested in getting that kind of specific prediction here's a model of consciousness i can project it into things called decorated permutations and from that i can go into space time so that's my my little local but the bigger picture is what you were talking about earlier. You know, what is consciousness really up to? If we're just consciousness, we're not bodies in space time. What is consciousness doing and why? And I think what you said earlier is, is a really um, is a good pointer. And, and, and that is that consciousness is exploring all of its, its potential. And it's, 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 this is one headset, and it's learning a little bit about itself from, from this one perspective. As you said, this is just a perspective. And so consciousness adopts different perspectives and learns about itself from those different perspectives and moves on. So in some sense, all I'm doing is what consciousness is always up to, which is um, helping itself to see that, oh, this space and time was just another perspective. That, that's not me. And I'm not this body. Oh, it's a sort of, so it's consciousness sort of waking up. So I, I'm just part of this, you know, what consciousness is always doing, which is um, getting lost in a particular headset and then waking up and saying, oh, this was a virtual reality all along, but I learned something. You know, I let myself lose myself in it. I got immersed in the game completely. And now I'm, I'm extracting myself. I'm no longer immersed, but I learned a lot um, about myself from that perspective. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me of almost they, they say how art is sometimes more true than the facts itself. And I almost feel like the same type of thing the, Sometimes you need to tell a great lie of an art piece in order to have the real truth underneath it. And that's almost like us experiencing reality. We have this deeper truisms that we're getting just from jumping into these different 
experiences with these different avatars and these understandings. It may or whether or not is true or not, it's just the can we gain perspective and greater understanding within ourselves and, and how we operate in this in this world, which is it's a, yes. it's a fascinating concept. Diving and taking one step back about the mathematical model of consciousness, if that is the goal, we'll just say that's the goal uh, with what you're looking at right now. What is the dragon? What is the thing really difficult for you to overcome to be able to actually find out if to achieve that holy grail? Oh, well, part of it is, is my lack of intelligence. I mean, uh, if, I, if I was a, <laughs> more, uh, you know, uh, I have no hope. <laughs> the, the, the mathematics involved is just quite, uh, quite difficult. Um, and uh, I, I'm Fortunately, I'm collaborating with some people that are far more talented than me in mathematics, including Chetan Prakash and Manish Singh and so forth. So, so when, when I when I fall down on my face, they, they can sort of pick up this you know the thing and move on um, and, and carry it forward. So so that it turns out, but if if you want a theory that's worth its salt that can actually tell you its limits, then you really need mathematics, and, and it has to be that kind of precise theory. And so that, for me, is is um, one of the, the biggest difficulties. And, and even for my math, my mathematician friends, um, the problems that we're dealing with here, they're always having to learn new mathematics. They're always right. You, you, mathematics is, is an girdle. Actually, I think his incompleteness theorem entails that there's no end to the exploration of possible mathematical structures. That's why there's no end of consciousness exploring this, this potential. Literally, no end in principle. So that this this is in some sense um, ne uh, never going to stop. Whatever that notion of time would be here, it's never going to stop because there's an unlimited set of uh, things to explore. Mm -hmm. So that's the hardest thing is that my avatar in this headset has certain definite limits. And um, it has only a very modest ability with mathematics, some, but, but, but very modest. And, and when I see people who really know mathematics, then, then I know my place. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it sounds like, again, in order to win the fitness score, when it comes around mathematics, you have to be able to test the assumptions, be able to create formulas or different types of equations, which is a type of mathematical perception that allows you to understand reality to test the assumptions inside those constraints. It's just getting to that point, to getting that perception is a earned battle uh, uh, through the evolution of knowledge and and progress, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. That's a really important point, and, and I would I would say by the way that you know all as we say all of our pointers are are fallible. They're they're just pointers. They're not the truth. The the key is to get pointers that tell you their limits. That's the point. When you just use natural language, you can't do it. So that's why all these spiritual traditions, it's very easy to become dogmatic because you have all these pointers and you get wedded to a pointer and you, this is the right way to, this is, you know, it's, it's, you know, this is right. You know, Jesus is the only way or, or Muhammad is the only way or whatever, whatever it might be. But those are those are pointers, and we need to see the limits of our pointers. And with just language, it's hard to get that kind of precision. With mathematics, you can get the precision where your theory says this is where I stop. 
And that's when, so, so we, we know that all of our pointers are just pointers, right? Anybody who really understands, ultimately everything I'm saying is not it. Anything I could say about chocolate is not chocolate. It's just <laughs> what I'm saying about chocolate, right? So, so it's yeah. never it. It's always a pointer. But we're, we get attached to our pointers. We, we love our pointers, and we often forget the thing that they're pointing to. So that's the point of the mathematics, or one of the important points of it. It's not just to be, you know, hard-nosed and say, I can do this precisely, and you can't. It's, that's not, it's, it's no. It's really to avoid dogmatism and to avoid being attached to our pointers. So the pointers themselves say, don't be attached to me because I stop right here. At 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, space-time is meaningless. Okay, okay, I'm not going to be attached to space-time anymore because it's meaningless beyond 10 to the minus 33. So that's what we want our pointers to tell us, when do I become meaningless? And so that's the point of the math. That's amazing, yeah. I think of it in terms of the hero's journey. I think of it in terms of like, honoring the the journey for the search and understanding of consciousness and what it really means you don't get attached to any one step along the journey or any one of the perspectives that allow you to climb the summits what you're doing is you're keeping your eye on the prize of actually trying to truly understand consciousness in this reality and so you can't get there with any one model you just got to take you can't and you can't just say this is the only step of the journey this is the only summit there's another summit to get to so you have to kind of have that long-term view of the actual honoring the progress and the journey, not necessarily the step that you're currently on that's getting you from one point to another point. Absolutely. So you yeah. honor Jesus, you honor Muhammad. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But but then you realize, okay, those were those are pointers to a deep spiritual. So honor them, but 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 certainly don't kill each other over them. <laughs> But as soon as you're killing each other over the pointers, you've missed the whole point. Yeah, you missed the point. <laughs> love. The point is that you and I are the one conscious under different avatars. So if we use our pointers to start throwing darts at each other, then we've then the, we've gone attached to the pointer. We've missed the thing that they're pointing to, which yeah. is the love. I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. And that's the whole point, which is fantastic. And with that being said, is there um, anything else you'd like to let people know about before you, they tell them how to get hold of you or, or get a hold of your book? Oh, I think we, we, we covered it pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty thorough discussion here. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So if uh, someone wants to get a, a hold of you and or your book, A Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes, how do they do that? You can find it on Amazon. It's pretty easy to get on Amazon or, or your favorite bookseller. So you can get that. And I have a, a Twitter feed you know, at Donald D. Hoffman, all one word. So it's easy if you just Google you know, my name and you can get my Twitter feed. So I usually try to post my, I'll, I'll post this podcast and, and, um, and other podcasts as well. Beautiful. So you heard it there. If you, if you want to uh, tweet at Donald here about the mysteries and mathematical models for the consciousness and the universe, uh, feel free. Uh, Donald, thank you so much for your time, brother. I appreciate your insights, your time, your attention, your care, and you honoring the process. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you, Dan. Right. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes or to apply to be on the show. If you're interested about becoming a coach in VR, check out Dylan's Becoming a Master Coach in Virtual Reality course at heroesofreality.com slash VR coach.
Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the other side.